You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Good evening, everyone, and thank you from the bottom of my heart for praying for me. That means a lot, and uh, Drew, it was a very well-spoken, heartfelt prayer. I needed it. I'm feeling okay tonight. This morning was a different story, but um, tonight's better, so that's good. I'm going to teach tonight from Romans chapter five and six, some verses out of each chapter, so you can turn if you have your Bibles and want to follow along. As they say, Romans 5.12 is where we will begin. I do feel to teach you tonight a nice slice of the pie of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is my great burden to understand and proclaim and teach the full gospel of Jesus. There are many attributes and aspects of the gospel, and we usually only focus on a few, and usually just enough to get people saved, but actually the gospel continues to be preached and taught to the church in order for the church to be edified. The New Testament calls the gospel the word of the Lord in the book of Acts. We're reading tonight from Romans, right? Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. It's a very long letter. And he says to them that he wants to visit them. his, His visit is something he was planning. They've been praying about doing it. And this letter is going ahead of his visit. He says, I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. And he says, I want to um, proclaim the gospel to you. And I want to harvest some fruit among you. And that's all speaking to people in Rome who are already Christians. These are believers for whom Paul says, you need my ministry. You need a fuller gospel, basically. Because the way they were behaving in many of the controversies between Jewish believers and and Gentile believers, there was arguing and there was division. They weren't living in a very good harmony. We get all that out from uh, Romans chapters 12 to the end. And so the way Paul reads a situation like that is that there's a gospel problem. If this is the way the king's people are treating one another, then they don't understand the message of the king. So Paul's saying, I want to come to you and I want to live among you and I want to teach and I want to impart something spiritual to strengthen you, but all of that is in the gospel. I want to give you by, Paul is saying, the example of my life and my preaching and teaching. I want to show you the full message of the king. Because the way you're behaving toward one another is clearly saying you don't understand the fundamental full spectrum of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is my great burden because I see the oversaturated church in the West, oversaturated with all kinds of Christian communication online and books and otherwise, much of which is great. We're we're so saturated, sometimes we don't realize that we have some fundamental misunderstandings of what the gospel actually is and what it implies for life in the kingdom for disciples who are continuing to grow. For Paul and the apostles, everything was gospel. The message of the New Testament is the gospel of Jesus Christ announced, taught, and then unfolded. 
So I personally identify eight aspects to the gospel. I will not teach on all eight tonight, of course. I'm only going to teach on one, but I'm going to teach uh, and share about this, Lord willing, uh, with the students tomorrow, the eight wonders of the gospel. I'm going to give a bird's eye view and focus here and there. Tonight we're going to focus on one aspect. You're already there in Romans 5, but there's, there's three aspects of the gospel Paul focuses on in Romans. So that's three out of eight. We're only going to focus on one, but I want to tell you the three. All right, Romans is broken into four major sections as I see it. The, okay, so there's three aspects of the gospel, the first three sections, and then section number four is an exhortation to the church Paul says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, I exhort you to, to, to give your lives as living sacrifices. So he says, and basically what he's saying, this is your reasonable service. The, the word there is from the word logos. In other words, this is your service based on the message I just gave you. That's what he's saying there. I just gave you the full expanse of the gospel, Paul says, the main three points. In light of that, here's how you ought to live. And then he exhorts them to give their lives away, surrender is always first, and then taught them how to relate to one another. The gospel informs us about every single inch of the Christian life. So the fourth section of Romans is the exhortation to apply it. The first three sections Paul discusses and wants the, the Christians in Rome to know. First of all, you are justified by faith as the gift of God. And that's because of the blood of Jesus. It's a gift, come on now. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't perform enough works as, as Jewish people or Gentiles going, jumping through the right hoops, whatever it is. It's given as a gift, the blood of Jesus. We are, Paul says we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, who, who God set forth as a propitiation uh, for a, a, a propitiation in his blood, excuse me. So he did all the work. His blood made amends to God for our sins, purged our sins when we believe, uh, gave the price of ransom for our slavery. It did it all as a gift. All we do is turn to Jesus and believe and we're given the gift of justification by faith. That's the first aspect of the gospel. The second aspect that he wants the Romans to know, the one we're focusing on tonight, is that the gospel, having granted us justification, we're liberated from sin, we're, we're free from sin, we're, we're forgiven, right? We have peace with God, that's another thing he says. But not only that, part of the gospel message, very important, we are transformed into a whole new human. That's, the, that's a gospel truth. All right, the first thing is justification by faith. That's through the death of Jesus. The second issue is that we are given the Holy Spirit to be transformed. Right, so we're not justified by faith. We don't just believe in Jesus, get a ticket to heaven, and attend church when God is lucky. That is not the gospel. That's not the fullness of the gospel that we're just only justified by faith. The fullness of the gospel includes an announcement that when we truly believe, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we are transformed into what the Bible calls a new creation. And in light of that new creation, the apostles urge all the saints who are listening, through what I'm talking about in the scriptures, you must live this new life. You've been granted absolute 
amnesty of all these horrible sins. In one shot, you believe it's applied, but you're also given the spirit to, to show God, Paul says, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh, but we are under obligation to live the new life that we've been granted. That's gospel teaching. That's not a Pentecostal add-on for those who are really interested in Jesus. That's just as important as the free gift of justification. We're also given the free gift of the Holy Spirit and are now obligated to cultivate new life. Come on. It's urgent. The third aspect of the gospel is that a new community is created. That's in Romans 9 through 11, Jews and Gentiles. So he teaches on both sets of ethnic groups, so to speak, and that is implicitly connected to the ascension of Jesus. He doesn't mention that in Romans, but he does mention it in Ephesians. That's another sermon, another day. So by the death of Jesus, we're justified when we believe. When we believe. By the resurrection of Jesus, we're granted new life and transformation when we believe. And by the ascension of Jesus, we are plunged into a new community and should cultivate family relationships because if we don't, we do not testify that Jesus is Lord, according to Jesus. It's by your love for one another that they will know you are my disciples. But again, that's another sermon. So we're focusing on the new life, the transformation, and Paul begins that section in Romans chapter five, verse 12, okay? So off we go. Father, we pray for your help right now. We bow before you and wait before your throne and we thank you for your abundance of grace and mercy and we do pray for the Holy Spirit right now to act in our hearts, to enable us to see, to catch. We can talk in the natural, but we need your spirit just as we pray during worship to open our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus in this gospel. Not just to understand, but to catch and to believe that those who believe are renewed with a new life that we may not even be aware of. So we're asking for that awareness as a gift of the Spirit. We ask for impartation. We ask that there'll be a wave like revival throughout this congregation, the saints of this city, our family members that aren't here tonight, Whoever qualifies who are truly following you, Lord, we pray for a wave of the Spirit to awaken us to our great identity in Christ for the glory of God and of Jesus Christ, his Son. That's our prayer. Jesus is King. He deserves such a people. In his name we pray, amen. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. So Paul's talking about, basically he's back in Genesis and then is referring to other books in Exodus. He's saying, look, it only took one man, the, the head human, to disobey God and infect the human race with sin. And we may not understand all of the sins before there's a law, but we do know there was death. So death uh, was the marker that sin had infected the human race through Adam. So Adam's the man. He's the, the father of the human race in a sense. He's the head of the human race. We, we all sin in Adam. This is what Paul's developing here in this section. But of course, that's in contrast to the Messiah Jesus, the new man. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls him the last Adam, a new kind of Adam. 
So verse 14, nevertheless, okay, there was no law to, to count sin or to impute sin, but in verse 14, there was death reigning from Adam until Moses when the law came, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So even for those that didn't disobey a command, Paul's saying, they are still sinners. We know that because death was in the human race. So even before the law, we're dealing with a fallen human race, right? That's one thing Paul's saying. Another thing Paul is saying when he refers to Adam, he says that Adam is a type of the one to come. So as, as powerful as Adam was, that through his failure in conjunction with Eve, but he focuses on Adam, rightly so in this passage, as powerful as he was to infect, to, to introduce sin into the entire human race and death, as powerful as he was as the first human, Jesus is more powerful. Adam was not, Adam was not the ultimate reality. He was a type of the one to come. The real man is Jesus. This is what Paul's establishing here. This is what qualifies Jesus Christ, one of the things that qualifies Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Lord. He's fully human, but he's fully human as the first human. He's not first chronologically, but he's first qualitatively. He came later in history. There were many, many millions of humans already born. But the first human, Adam, who was like the, 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 the influential man, Paul says he's only a type of the one who's coming. The one who's coming is the real man. We won't need another head human after Christ. He is the son of man. He is the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Jesus, you're beautiful. Right, we, we as, as, as horrific as Adam's fall was, it, that's something that could have been undone. A failure from Christ could not have been undone. Of course, that's unimaginable. I don't even countenance that possibility. But the point is, Adam was only a type. Jesus is the real man. He is the son of man. And what he did, everything he did to fulfill God's will was more powerful than Adam's failure. Jesus is the head of a new humanity. That's biblical language. He's the head, as it were, of a new race. When we are in Christ, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? We're a new creation. That's not just greeting card material, a religious card that you can buy at Walmart or the grocery store to send to your Christian friends, the little verse. That's an announcement of great happiness. When we, when we believe we receive a transformation and we become a new kind of human, we are not the people we were before we believed. We're a different kind of person. Our disposition has changed on the inside. A transformative, creative act has occurred from God's hand in our lives, from the center of our being all the way out. 
That's very, very powerful. Paul calls it the gospel. And the way some of these Romans were living, he's saying, you don't even realize who you are treating one another that way. You're, you are acting according to the social standards of your day. I talked a bit about that this morning. Ethnic barriers, social barriers of other kinds like socioeconomic levels, these were all very strongly maintained in the, the ancient Near Eastern world. Honor and shame were great values. You know, you went, you stuck with your group and often looked down on others, or even if you were benevolent and merciful, you couldn't eat with people below your station. You couldn't fellowship, you could give them things, but you had to stick with your people. That's, that's the way things were. And these Romans were, as Christians, were acting this way toward one another. They were treating one another according to the world's standards and way of thinking. You're, you're, you're bringing in your social distinctions here. The uppers and the lowers, the strong and the weak were the ones in conflict in Rome. And they were Jewish people and Gentile people felt, that's a whole other story, but they were, there were distinctions. And Paul says, clearly you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys are a new race. You're not like that anymore. You have to learn this and cultivate it. It's not magic. It's gospel power. If we're not aware of it, we can't cultivate it, which is why these words are written. And he says so in a minute, if I'll ever be quiet and get to it. But the fact that Adam is a type of the one to come means that Jesus is gooder than Adam did bad. The goodness of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the evil brought into the human race from Adam. That's why Jesus, even in his purity and his innocence, is so fr frightful to the devil. Because his goodness is more powerful than evil. His goodness is gooder than evil is evil. So when he came and did the work, it was victory. And he overcame the failure of Adam and the failure of the rest of us in Adam. So in verse 15, the, the gracious gift is not like the offense, for if by the offense of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Right, so the, the, the grace of God can overcome the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam was not the last word, as influential and pervasive and powerful as it was. It was not the last word. The last word is the victory of Jesus Christ, and it's finished. That's what Paul's saying. You think that was powerful, that sin spread to so many? Jesus' work overcomes all that in whomever believes. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. Right, so the, the sinfulness got out of hand. It, was, it turned into bazillion sins. And Jesus just came right up at it, out of that sea as the son of man and overcame it all in one act of obedience allowing himself to be the redemptive sacrifice for our sins. It's extraordinary. Jesus is the real man. He's the man. He's the head of the human race for those who believe. Paul's point is here, we are in that race. Let's start thinking and acting like we are. 
So let's go to verse 18. So then as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind, so also through one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the offense would increase, so that we'd understand categorically what sins are being committed. And it only invoked more sins. But where that sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As many sins were going on under the the, the microscopic attention of the law, grace proved itself more powerful than the power of sin and the law to bring guilt. And here's why. And I want to tell you this very quickly. Grace is not just a kind attitude. Grace empowers and transforms. The grace of God is a reference to God's goodwill where he loves people and he wants to give and does give free gifts. He gives freely. It's free. Right? We don't deserve it, but if we believe, we get grace. That's what grace does. But beyond that, grace empowers. Grace is practical. Grace is not abstract. In Greek, the word for grace is charis. And in the Greek language, whenever you want to make something abstract into something concrete, you add the ma at the end, M-A, charisma. That's the word for gift, charisma. It It is a manifestation of God's free will. He gives a gift. But what kind of gift is it? Well, the gift of redemption, if we believe. That's pretty practical, to be forgiven of all your sins in an instant. What about the gift of healing? What about the gift of prophecy? These are empowerments. They're not just good attitudes. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are charismata, a bunch of pieces of grace. They're empowerments. They're they're our superpowers. When God gives grace, grace means empowerment to do what God wants us to do. And grace is more powerful than sin. You guys digging what I'm saying? I literally think of these things when I sing, at least 40% of the time, I think of these things when I think and sing, Jesus, you're beautiful. This, this is the word. He's the word made flesh, and this is what he did. So the other thing I want to tell you about grace, not only does it empower, really this is very similar, it transforms, it recreates. When God's grace acts, it's a recreation. By grace, you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one will boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. See, that's what grace does. It creates a new creation. Very, very important to understand grace. Some people just think grace is like a license to sin and you really shouldn't, but if you do, you have grace. Grace is more concrete than that. When God gives grace, he transforms people into his son's image. And then discipleship is the cultivation of that image in the spirit of God. And when Paul saw that this discipleship was not happening in Rome, he said, well, you guys don't have a full gospel. Paul was extraordinary as an apostle, even among other apostles. He saw the full mystery of the full gospel, so he knew his value, and he said, I've got to get to Rome. This is like the capital of the world, and the saints there don't get the full gospel. 
There's arguing over theological, ethical, other social issues. They don't understand this gospel. And I thought, man, for how many years I lived my own life not fully understanding the gospel. And once I saw it in its full scope over time, I realized, man, we need this same education in our day. Paul literally needed to go to a capital city of the, the capital city of the empire to educate Christians who had been Christians for some time. They needed education in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I realized for so many years, so did I. And now I realize so do many Christians in the West. They don't understand the full gospel. They assume they do, but so much of our format for discipleship and church planting and church growth is just the carrying on of tradition or popular methods rather than the power of the gospel for which Paul said, I'm not ashamed. And I'm telling you, if we become full gospel people, we'll experience the power of God and resistance so that we'll have to say, we're not ashamed of this gospel. Even among some of our own tribe, I have found Oh my, verse 20, let's just go there. The law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We already read that. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigning through righteousness. Man, talk about freedom. We're not sinners trapped in our bodies without any power and then given a law that says, live up to this law, but I can't, I can't, I can't. That's right, the law is good, but it's only reminding you of what, so much of what you can't do. That's not grace. Grace liberates us, transforms us, and then is like wind in our sails and, and says, you're created to do this now. The law is this new covenant. The law is written on your heart, not on a tablet. It's written inside your chest cavity. Praise God. Look at this next line in verse one of chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Uh, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I've got to point out a couple of things here. First of all, Paul seizes on a misunderstanding of what he just said. When he said where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. What he's saying was, better than me, what I was just trying to say, that grace is more powerful than sin, but it, transform, it transforms us to live righteously, right? But if you take that out of context, if you don't listen to that explanation and just hear, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that means I can sin a lot and get more grace. And as ridiculous as that sounds, Paul's anticipating that's exactly what people will hear because it's what they wanna hear. So he says, ain't no way you're gonna get that out of my mouth, that's not what I meant. But then you might think he would say, actually, Christians shouldn't sin. That's wrong. And that's true, but that's not what he says. What he says is, how? This is someone speaking with the full force of understanding that this is a new creation. I know this is what he's saying. I read it right there in black and white. And I know what he means. And it's still sometimes challenging for me to relate to it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's a man aware that he had been severed from sin. I don't always feel that. Because this whole thing, and as Paul explains, it's something that has to be cultivated. It's something that has to be developed. But this is the next thing I wanna say. Look, look, at this, look at the next verse, verse three. Or don't you know? You see that in verse three? How many of you see that in verse three, don't you know? These are Christians who've been saved by a gospel they don't fully understand. Don't you understand 
that those of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You see where Paul's coming from? He's teaching Christians who were ignorant of their own gospel. They knew enough to be saved, but not enough to be transformed. Even though they were transformed, they did not realize who they were. Paul literally had to come and explain or write ahead and explain what had happened in them that they did not realize. The passage of information is extremely important. It's not magic. It doesn't happen automatically. God really uses us as stewards. He wants people to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants it done like Jeremiah 3 is with, through shepherds who are after his own heart who will feed his people on the knowledge of God. Paul's well aware that they're not aware of this gospel. So he's like, well, let me tell you, you, you have been emancipated and you don't even know it. Let me explain. So powerful. I'm telling you, we need this gospel today, even in an overly gospel-saturated society. I remember hearing of the testimony of a woman who got saved, who previously in her sinful life, she was a, a practitioner of the occult, she was into um, interaction with demons and using manipulation and, and, and dark demonic power to manipulate people and she had certain gifts. She was supernaturally endowed in some areas. Actually, she was kind of prophetic and she had uh, friends who were with her in this and here's what she said. Now, she became a believer and here's what she said after she got saved. She said, when we were in the occult, we had the ability to see how much, every, how much power every person had. Now, I can't relate to this. I've, I had a few experiences when I was younger with some drug use of supernatural occurrences, but not something like some of my other friends dove into the occult and actually could operate in demonic power. I mean, it didn't work out well for them, but they could do it for a while. So she was like that. But I can't relate to that, but she said that she could see the power over every person. She said every person, every single person, she says, carries a certain amount of power. I don't know exactly what she meant by that. I think she meant like some people are more influential. They're more charismatic naturally, right? This is why some of these you know, people are so successful what they do or politics or whatever. She said, but every person has a certain amount of power. We could see the amount on them. She said, we could always tell who the Christians were because they had the most power. She said, but we were never afraid of them because they didn't know it. She said, every once in a while, we'd find one who knew how much power he or she had, and we definitely stayed clear of that person. But for the most part, it wasn't a problem. This is the type of thing, it's not demonic, it's not, it's, it's not the occult, it's not magic, it's life. So it, it, it's a challenge to cultivate it. But that's not a bad problem. Everything in life is a challenge. We face all kinds of challenges to break through. Why not take on this challenge of really being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit called the grace of God? Let's go for it. 
And Paul gives some, uh, some instructions to us right here in this passage on how to cultivate it. So I'm going to give you some, some uh, like hooks as we go along here so that we can grab onto and pull ourselves forward. So the first thing is here, Paul's just informing them. Verse three, don't you know? Those of us who've been baptized into Messiah Jesus have been baptized into his death. So when we truly believe with our hearts, we're supposed to be submerged in water right away so that they go together. It's not the water that brings us eternal salvation, but it is our oath to God. And it was associated with the spiritual issue. So Paul says, when you're buried in that water, it's as if you're transported because now we're in Christ, we're not in Adam. So instead of being born into Adam's sin, it's like all that's erased and Christ's death is now ours because he's the head of our race. See, we inherited from Adam what he did and was. So Paul says, but when you're baptized into Christ Jesus, you know, you, you're disinherited from Adam and you're an heir of Christ. So now his death and resurrection is your new history. You're transported, plunge, old is dead, something new has risen. That happened to you. Now, I've seen baptisms where people have the power of God rush over them because of this exchange of life that occurs. Even though it doesn't happen because of the water, it's still the event that's associated with it. It's the, it's the marriage vows. My wife, when she was seven, was baptized in a river in California, and that was the first time she, she felt the power of God. She knew she was saved and that God was bearing witness to her when her dad baptized her as a seven-year-old. It's a memory she carries with her all of her life. The point is that we're transported into Christ, whether we felt something or not. These folks didn't feel a whole lot. They had to be informed of everything. That's all right. I don't mind. If I'm carrying something I don't realize, well, then tell me what I got. Help me to work it out. That's what we're all here for each other for. That wasn't the best English grammar, but we made the point. Verse four, therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death. See, the old is dead. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. One day we'll be physically raised from the dead. Right now we can walk in, in newness of life. What verse was I at? I lost my place here. Newness of life. Verse five. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old human was crucified with him. How can that be? Because he's the last Adam. When we were in Adam, we inherited all his stuff. We're no longer in Adam. Now we're in Christ. So we inherit all his stuff. And that's the death of the old. Even Jesus went through the death of the old humanity. His humanity was not sinful, but it was still a body he inherited from Miriam and could die, but we're about to find out he can never die again. And he's fully human because that's what we were meant to be and will be raised to be. Oh my, verse six, knowing this, that our old human, the whole old humanity was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for the one who has died is free from sin. The first hook I give you at the beginning of verse six, knowing this, it starts with the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to learn, even in our brains, before it makes it down into our hearts, we have to get the information. 
There's times I recollect these beautiful truths, but I don't feel them to be true in my heart and the energy pumping through my, my heart and my body. So there's times there's like, it's just the world we live in. We got these bodies. We got all kinds of demons flying around. We live in the world. There's all kinds of communication. That's, 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 that's the war we're in. It's okay. It's okay. But we got to start with the knowledge. We have to learn these things by reading and listening and pouring it over and getting it in the gray matter, knowing our old self is crucified. You know, but sometimes I have a hard time. Hold on a second with your hard time. Let's make sure we're grasping the information. You are a new species. That's what this gospel claims. If we've bought into the gospel, then let's buy in to the gospel. Let's buy all the way in. It says we died when we believed and were baptized. Let's buy into that. Well, my experience doesn't say that. Well, your experience is not an apostle writing scripture. The Bible is the word of God, is it not? The Bible really is our authority. This is another one of, our, another one of my burdens. I sometimes find that Christians view the word of God as an authority, as a symbol of authority, rather than the actual raw data informing them authoritatively over the lies of the devil and sometimes over the lies of our own feelings. Let's know the data of scripture. Let's get into the knit and grit of biblical understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was crucified with him. Come on, I was crucified with him. I was crucified with him and I was raised with him. That's, that's the information. I'm not really too worried about the way my emotions are lining up with that. Because I've bought, I've bought into this. I've signed, up for the, I've signed up for the gospel. I've signed up for the Bible as the word of God. So let's start rowing the boat in that direction or continue. Verse eight, now if, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. I told you he was gonna say that. Some of you may not have believed me, but now you see it. He's never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Isn't it interesting the way Paul toggles between talking about Jesus, talking about who we are in Jesus, talking about Jesus, talking about who we are in Jesus, right in the same passage because it's all wrapped together. He's our last Adam. We're all, we are in him. Anyway, he's never to die again. Death no longer is master over him for the death he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Praise Jesus. Next phrase, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now he's going further. He's announcing the great gospel of Jesus. This is what Paul does. He unveils more of Jesus for us, unveils more of Jesus, saying these beautiful things like death no longer is master over him because the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's who our Jesus is. But just like that, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Really, me? Yeah, this is taking knowledge a step further. You get the information, you and I get the information, we learn it, we know it, now we consider it to be true. The word to consider in this passage means to calculate it, to sort it out, to, to make it your opinion, and to believe it. It's an attitude, okay? When I'm learning about this great gospel that I actually died with Christ, and I have new life in Christ, I have the Holy Spirit, I'm transformed, and I hear that, I go, hmm, 
See, I nod with a face that looks interested. Hmm. But when I consider it to be true, it becomes a little bit of an attitude. It becomes a chip on my shoulder against sin. I, I have a look of interest when I know it, but when I consider it to be true, I go, huh, I didn't realize that. So you're saying, like, I have power over sin? Yeah, because I don't feel that power. Sometimes I keep going back to that same trap. Yeah, well, you got to get this in your noggin, and then you got to get it in your heart for consideration that this is who you are. See, it doesn't happen by just looking at a verse a day or like just on the screen when it comes up. This is something that's ours. It, it's ours, but we got to fight for it. We have to fight for what's ours because the devil's trying to rob us of it by making us forget or ignorant of it and getting us acquainted with all the dopes that fill in, meaning the forms of dope, not people who are dopes, but different kinds of dope to fill in the gaps for self-soothing instead of really daring to come into the liberation that is ours in Christ. This is, to me, this is naturally impossible to relate to, but by the grace of God, I just... 2 Corinthians 3, gazing at the glory, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Let's go for it. Let's see what's out there for us. Let's see what's in there for us. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And to close here, our last hook out of the three. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body. What do you think about that? This is the beauty of scripture. You know how there's conflict again, like in, in the church with the, a lot of the grace message where these guys are saying, you can't just hammer on sin all the time. Just, we're fine, we have grace. We're forgiven, we're new, just rest. And there's truth to that. But on the other side, the other guys are saying, but you're being soft on sin. And then these guys are saying, but you're always hammering on sin. It's like you're more focused on sin. Well, let me tell you something, Paul did it all, but in the right order. This is one of the beautiful aspects of grace. Right at the center of grace to make it practical is something called exhortation. The first thing Paul does, and the other apostles do it as well. We're in Romans 6 where Paul follows this pattern. He follows this pattern in Colossians 3. He follows this pattern all throughout 1 Corinthians. Uh, Peter follows this pattern in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I think there's one other passage, whatever, uh, where it's explicit. This is the pattern. Paul says, Here what, here's what Christ did. Here's who you are in Christ if you believe. Let's get that first. This is what grace does. It does the transforming work, and then it says you're transformed. If you're a believer, you're transformed. Then it exhorts us to stop sinning and to cultivate the new life. It doesn't just come after the behavior without reminding us of the new identity. It won't do that, because that's legalism. If you're just behavior-oriented, but to ignore behavior and only talk about the new identity, Paul would have none of that. He just builds his case. And then he says in verse 12, stop sinning. Now you know who you are. You got a little light on the subject. You've been a little bit encouraged. This is what grace does. Grace doesn't just transform us. It approaches us and says, here's who you are. Now, let me exhort you. And it's a really parental, very friendly little kick in the pants sometimes. You're, you know, my mom, my mom one time, <clears throat> my mom came out of the elevator in her condo and she slipped on the clean tile. I'm almost done. I'm a couple minutes late, but I really am almost done. She slipped on the clean tile. She broke her pelvis. God bless her. 
And um, the dear lady on the hall who saw her, my mom could not get up. She's saying, help me, help me. The lady sees her down the hall, runs away. Great neighbors, my mom moved out of there. <clears throat> She's like, what am I, she could not move. She was um, crying out to God and the Lord spoke to her through a memory she had of her mother when her mother used to tell her, you're a strong girl, you can do this. And my mom was able to crawl to the place where she could get some help, but she kept hearing that. That's an exhortation. It, it, it speaks to identity and then to action based on the identity. It doesn't just go to the action, but neither does it just sit in the identity and ignore the behavior. It just does both with the identity first, all for the glory of God. And there may be some precious sisters in here tonight who need to hear that, just that little comment from my mom to you, from the Lord to you. You're a strong girl, you can do this. You're a strong girl, you can do this, but I feel so weak. Ah, you know what we are when we're weak. We're strong. <laughs> because of the grace of God. In any case, see here, Paul gets to the exhortation, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now you realize what kind of guns you carry, pull them out and start shooting so that you obey its lust. Don't let the sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its lust and don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body members as weapons of righteousness for God. For sin will not be master over you because you are not under law. You are under grace. The law beats you down and tells you what you can't do. Grace makes you something new and then tells you what you can do. And it's all flowing from the throne of Jesus Christ. So that's the third hook. Present your members. Take action. The first one is we got to know it. We got to know the gospel, know what God has done in Christ, and know what he made us to be in Christ. That's number one. Number two, we take that knowledge and get us an attitude. An attitude of love toward people, but not love toward sin and the devil. It's an attitude that says, I am a child of God. God has done this. This is not self-serving. God has done this, and for his glory, I will live victoriously over sin, and I will cultivate this new life. And number three, you put it into action. You literally present your members to God as weapons of righteousness. Our identity is to glorify God as his children, his sons and daughters on this earth, and when, once we really learn who we are, we get to work doing it. And you know what? It doesn't happen after one sermon. But with the impartation, when, however many times we read this sermon in Romans 6, we cultivate more and more and we exhort one another when we need it. Sometimes people in the throes of the battle of developing this go down hard with discouragement. We just, we pick them up. We say, we'll be your strength for a minute. We're gonna help one another. It's never to be done alone. And together, over time, we cultivate a new creation that's been granted to us by God. That's the power of the resurrection in this age through the Holy Spirit before we're physically raised at the end of the age. Let's stand. I will pray for you. And then we'll continue on with the meeting with prayer and waiting on God. Just going to pray 
that God would help us on all three of those levels and pray for impartation right now in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Thank you, Father God, for these beautiful Christian people in this, in this great city that's marked by you. Thank you for this precious gathering, for every single individual here, for every heart, every man, every woman, every boy and girl. I'm just so grateful for their calling for their effectiveness in the kingdom, for their hearts of humility and sincerity. I'm just so grateful, God. I'm thankful for their faith, that they're, they're making headway in their, in their city with the gospel and in the heavens. I thank you for them, Father. I'm just grateful, grateful that we get this time with them. And I pray now that you will bless and, and, and grant a deposit to every person here, to the families that are represented and to this, this congregation as a unit, I pray for impartation, for deposit right now, for understanding, to unlock what we already have. I pray for the release of the knowledge of God. That's what the Bible calls a word of knowledge. That's what a word of knowledge is. It's a message that imparts the knowledge of God. And there's always a message of wisdom that comes first. So I pray for the impartation of wisdom and knowledge. I pray for words of wisdom and words of knowledge to be imparted so that there's a release of knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, and the knowledge of the new creation, which is referred to as a mystery in scripture. Unveil the mystery to the hearts of your people. Lord, I wanna get in on this this too. I need the very things I understand with my mind. I need a broadening of the heart. As the psalmist said, you, you will enlarge my heart so I can run the course of your commandments. So do that here and now. Enlarge our hearts so that we not only know these beautiful truths, but we consider them to be true in our spirit, in our attitude, in our faith, God. Let there be a helmet of salvation falling, just coming down like a uniform on the head of this congregation. The helmet of victory, the helmet of salvation in Jesus' name. And Father, I'm asking for that activity of the Spirit to translate the knowledge and the consideration or the attitude into action where the members of our bodies become weapons of righteousness, waging war, implementing the will of God on earth in our personal ethics, in our acts of justice, whatever else. May we be those who present ourselves, same word used for presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. May we present ourselves to God. Our bodies are not our own. These, they, are, they are instruments of righteousness. May it be so for all of us tonight. May the corners be turned in our lives in, in the victory that we should have in Jesus' name for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.